welcome back to the Hot Key Podcast. I hope that the sun is shining wherever you are this Friday. My name is Isabel Taylor and I am your host and this month we have some amazing speakers lined up for you. Rutendo Tavengawe will be speaking to us about her newest novel, The Colours That Blind, which this month has been the Guardian Book of the Month and the Times Book of the Week. She will be telling us about her inspiration for the story and the moment that she realised it was one book and not two. E. Lockhart will also be talking to us about her experience writing Again Again, which started its life as multiple short stories exploring love. Marina Stavropoulou will be opening the door into the world of audiobook production and Elizabeth Acevedo will be sharing her decision-making process when considering whether to write a novel in verse. We will be ending on an extract from the audiobook of Midnight's Twins by Holly Race. Rutenda lived and studied in Zimbabwe until the age of 18 when she moved to South Africa to study law. Hope is Our Only Wing, her debut novel with Hockey Books, was nominated for the 2019 Carnegie Medal. Her second novel, The Colours That Blind, is a breathtaking YA book set in Zimbabwe about freedom, intergenerational friendships and forgiving the past. With rich descriptions of life in Zimbabwe, sights, smells and politics woven into the story, the novel follows the interlocking stories of a grandmother and grandson. Hi guys, my name is Rutendo Tavengere. I am the author of The Colours That Blind, which was published by Hotkey Books in May 2020. And I'm really excited to be joining you guys on the Hotkey podcast. So The Colours That Blind is a novel that's told from two different perspectives. That of Tumirai, a 14, going on to 15-year-old boy with albinism and who is at the same time struggling with his identity because of his albinism. And his grandmother, Ambuya, whom he suspects had something to do with the traumatic event that happened to him in the past. So during the school holidays, Tumirai's brother is forced to go to a work thing and he has to then go and live with his grandmother for a few weeks, which jeopardizes his plan to be training for the Olympic team, Olympic swimming team uh, of Zimbabwe. And one of his greatest fears is that if he can't train, he'll be kicked off the school team for the trial. And if he can't try out, then his friends and his schoolmates won't think that he's cool anymore and they won't. There'll be nothing about him that's special that will uh, kind of redeem his albinism because he thinks that he, without the swimming, that people will not be able to look past his albinism. And also he's very afraid to be going to his grandmother's because he's still very suspicious of her and she kind of has scars on her face so that also scares him and she just doesn't trust him. So he finds letters just before he leaves for his grandmother that were written to his brother by his grandmother uh, years back and, you know, he starts reading those uh, and they kind of start now a process of telling the story of his grandmother set in 1975 to 76 in pre-independent Zimbabwe which was then Rhodesia and it then flows into the grandmother later opening up and kind of sharing her life story as well and talking about the illegal love that she had, working for the comrades while at the same time being friends with the missionaries. So kind of being caught between two sides and kind of like just the racial hate that was there at the time and just how difficult it was for her to live during that time. So uh, without giving up too much, that's the gist of the book. And the thing that I really, really love about it is that it's based on, it's inspired by true events. Um, so with the grandmother's story, it 
was pretty much an inspiration of a story that I grew up hearing from my dad about his friends and teachers who were uh, missionaries at a school called Emmanuel in Vumba, Zimbabwe. So the life that they lived kind of impacted on the community and up to the point that they died. I grew up hearing a lot about their stories and I just wanted, I'd always wanted from a very young age to kind of explore that story. And Tumirai's story is kind of like a combination of different stories, I guess, because there's a lot of atrocities that are committed against uh, people with albinism in different parts, uh, in some parts of Africa. So when I found that out, actually, I kind of grew up hearing about it. But when I started researching into it and kind of realizing that it's something that still happens now, I wanted to kind of touch on that. So the thing was, before I actually got how I would write the story, I thought I had two different stories and I was struggling to figure out how I'm going to tell both of them. And then I think the Christmas of 2017, I want to think. Yeah, if I remember correctly, it was the Christmas of 2017. I was visiting a friend in Paris and we were just passing by the train station to go to our apartment. And we saw <laughs> we saw this old woman and her grandson. I want I want to think it was the grandson, and they were both wrapped in like a blanket. And she was telling him a story, or it seemed like she was telling him a story. And I just stopped and like thought, oh my gosh, this is it. This is how I'm going to tell the story. So that's how it came to me. <laughs> Almost missed off train, but I think it was worth it. And it's a joke that you know it's a recurring joke between my friend and I that if I hadn't visited her, I wouldn't have been able to get that story so that's how the story eventually set but the elements of what I wanted to talk about had been brewing for quite a while you know this book is very important to me not only because it's a retelling of people who were in a way very important to my father but it's also like the themes that I explored in the book are quite important I think and relevant even to the times that we're living in now um, over the past few weeks we've been seeing a lot of activity and protests uh, related to the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of like unearthings of injustice committed because of prejudices that people have with regards to race and just hatred in general. And I think the fact that it explores a historic timeline with the grandmother and then contemporary timeline with Tumirai, um, I think that kind of shows that there's a very, there's an urgency that is there to ensure that history doesn't replay because usually we look at history and we think all oh, those things will never happen again but then we ignore or look away when it adapts and begins to replay in our modern societies and it's very sad as well to kind of see that you know some of the things that I was writing in the book especially with regards to like the grandmother and the kind of life that she would have lived in pre-independent Zimbabwe during colonial times are things that are still experienced by people in different parts of the world things that I personally have also experienced in different parts of the world and you know that just kind of made me question throughout the whole writing process that you know it's very easy to say that we've come a long way but have we really come a long way or have we allowed certain things to to adapt and if we haven't really made a lot of progress why is it why do we not listen to each other when there's grievances and why is this still a thing that happens why is racism still a thing that we talk about and I've heard a lot of commentary along the lines of oh but is always when black writers write they always want to bring this up but I think people talk about pain 
when it's there you don't ignore a pain in you when you have it you talk about it because it's still it's still there and it still needs to be addressed so i think that's one of the things that i was trying to process for myself as well as i was writing and just wanted to talk about and you know for that very reason because some of the experiences are very close to home and some of the things were things that my dad would tell me and things that he experienced as well so it was very difficult to write I won't be I won't lie about that um it was very difficult to write um even talking to I spoke to a few of the people who had known the missionaries who had known some of the comrades and kind of just hearing you know some of these stories you just really shocked i spoke to uh, a few individuals who work with people with albinism especially children and then you just hear of atrocities that that are committed against people with albinism and then you just think gosh simply because they look different and they're persecuted or harmed because of that it's it's just yeah so it was very difficult especially during the research um part of it and the writing was also quite difficult because I, I i didn't want to not capture these stories properly i mean of course they are adapted and of course i added a lot of plot points that might not necessarily be true word to word but i wanted to honor the people who had gone through it, the experiences that i was borrowing and ad- adapting my story from and I, I still don't know if I've done that. So it was very difficult to try and make sure that I'm honoring their memory. I'm honoring their stories. And I'm, you know, kind of putting it in a way that will still be quite interesting for people to read. Usually when I think about writing, I I think one of the things that I really think about is what I want to talk about. <laughs> I have this notebook that I that I keep in uh, that I use to plot actually um, that has on it that you only write if you have something to say not so you can say something so it's one of those things that I if I have a story it's usually because I have a theme that I want to explore and not from a teaching perspective because I don't think I am that wise not yet anyway um, so it's always wanting to explore the subjects and kind of bring in different perspectives and kind of look at it from different points of view try and see if there's a way to understand it and kind of see if there's anything to learn from it how could could anybody possibly learn from it and usually I do it for myself like what could I learn from this so as much as it's you know writing for other people's mostly also writing for myself because I learn a lot when I write and I also learn a lot when I read um, so like right now, as I'm working on my third book, <laughs> I'm reading a lot of, I must admit, this wasn't like necessarily my idea. I kind of copied this from an article that I read about Chimamanda, who's one of my all-time favorite writers. If you haven't read her, I really, really recommend that you check her out. She's very good. So uh, I can't remember where, which article said this about her, but that like when she's writing, one of the things that helps her with language is poetry. And I thought, hmm, that's a good idea. Kind of like helps your creative juices to flow out. Because like one of the things that I like to do when I'm writing is play with language. So if you read The Colors Are Blind or even my previous book, Hope Is Our Only Way, and you kind of see that coming through that I like playing with phrases and stuff like that. So I am reading poems by E.E. E. Cummings. I love E.E. E. Cummings. I've always loved them. So that's one of the things that's on my bedside table ah oh, and i am absolutely in love with hope i don't butcher this name but uh oyin kan braithwaite uh who wrote uh my sister the serial killer 
I love this book. It's just so simple, so fast, so good. I cannot recommend it enough. It is it is just really really good. And also one of my faves so far is uh Clap when you land. Oh my gosh. It is it's uh, oh my gosh. It's just really good. I loved Elizabeth Acevedo's previous book, well both of them actually, Poetex and With the Fire on High, which was also published by Hotkey Books. Oh my gosh, she is just really talented and I just love seeing writing that's very different from mine and you know also reading about a culture that's very different from mine. I love reading uh, Elizabeth's work. It's just really really breathtaking and a breath of fresh air. So yeah, that's some of the the, the books that I'm reading right now, but the book that I think will always stay with me. I mean there's a couple, it's very difficult to choose, isn't it? But I think most definitely, like I said before, I really do admire Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and I love her Pepper Wipers because I think it's the first time that I saw, when I read it, of course, I, I can't remember how old I was, but it's the first time that I saw a young black African character being the main character in a book. And maybe that sounds really ridiculous but it was very shocking for me because I'd always been reading like white characters or you know so it was very like oh this can happen this is okay so that kind of made it okay for me to be able to start writing characters that are young and African and you know start to see that you know these stories can be told and they are worth telling so for my third book (laughs) I'm really excited and frustrated with it because it's something new and a bit out of my comfort zone but I'm enjoying writing it I think it's kind of challenging my writing as well and forcing me to grow I don't want to give too much away because I love suspense <laughs> as a person which is something that you'll find in The Colors That Blind which I hope you'll get but yeah I am working on something that I think you'll like I think that's that's the most I'm willing to share at the moment but yeah if you follow me on my social media I drop hints here and there maybe not a lot not yet but you know I will try and and be dropping more hints as I as I write and get more comfortable with the story. But I do hope that you go and pick up uh, the colors that blind. As I've said, it's very important to me. I love it with all my heart, and I hope that you go out and get it, and that uh, if you do, that you enjoy it, and that it resonates with you. Or if it doesn't, I hope that it challenges you in in some way, or in the very least, just entertains you. I'd love it if you connected with me on my social media platforms on the handle at Ruru Writes, which is both for my Instagram and Twitter page, and you can also find me on my webpage, which is a same ruralrights.com thank you so much for listening thank you for joining me and i do hope that you're going to grab yourself a copy of the colors are blind and tell me what you think about it e lockhart is the new york times best-selling author of many novels including we were liars and genuine fraud her newest novel again again is an inventive and romantic story about human connection and possibility and how to navigate the problem of loving other people set in multiple universes it is a raw and funny story that will surprise you again and again hi my name is e lockhart and i am the author of again again we were liars genuine fraud and uh some other books all of which are published by hot key books and again again is new this june 2020 it is so nice to be here on the hot key podcast again again 
It was a very tricky novel to write. I wanted to write a book about romantic love, but I really didn't want to uh, write any kind of like fantasy fake thing that wasn't real. I wanted to write something that would be really, really honest and true and at the same time romantic in a in a not cynical way in a in a hopeful emotional way and i couldn't really figure out how to do those two things at the same time for quite a while and i eventually settled on the idea of writing a love story in multiple universes so again again started out as six interlocked short stories um, that each told the story of a summer when Adelaide Bookwald gets obsessed with this guy named Jack while she's living on the boarding school campus of the school that she goes to um, but it's pretty much empty for the summer and so she's alone a lot and she gets very obsessed with this this guy as she's recovering from a terrible breakup of her first love relationship and from some bad stuff that's been happening in her family. And I wanted to make the story reflect how hard it is to really see somebody that you love or like or crush on or desire accurately. We see the people that we feel romantic towards through a whole lot of lenses, like through um, through our own pain and our wounds through our fantasies, through our past experiences, through the lens of stuff we picked up in the culture, movies and novels and television shows. And so we can kind of be obsessed with or in love with even a desired other person and still not be able to see that person completely clearly. And maybe we can't ever see another person completely clearly. So I'm trying to write a romance that's also about that, which is a sort of, you know, anti-romantic sentiment. And I had this idea of these interlocked uh, short stories that repeat certain scenes, a kind of a theme and variation about Adelaide and Jack and this summer. And it all came from, you know, really honest exploration of my own romantic history and experience and a lot of stuff that I had been thinking about love. But the structure that I had was not good. The first Several drafts of this book were excruciatingly boring because of the repetition and because the story did not take a shape that was dynamic and full of mystery and excitement and it didn't build in the way that I wanted to with the stories repeating each other. So I reinvigorated the book by really leaning into the idea that the multiple universes are kind of all happening at the same time. So sometimes when people are reading again and again, they feel disoriented at the beginning. And that is okay, because there are multiple universes. Of course, you're going to be disoriented. But my hope is that you kind of just let them wash over you. And as you do, it will become clear what Adelaide's central story is and how the multiple universes are deepening your understanding of her character and her feelings for Jack and Jack's feelings for her and um, what the possibilities are when you really, really investigate what it means to be crazy about another person. So it was a difficult book to write because I had to do this complete 
top to bottom restructuring, which also became a reimagining. But I really loved using that high concept thing to explore, you know, very universal emotions. While I'm recording this, we're living in the COVID-19 epidemic and I'm here in New York City. So we've been sheltering at home for upwards of 12 weeks now. And that has affected my reading quite a bit. I've been reading comic essays, which I have really loved. I recommend Samantha Irby, We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, and Wow, No Thank You. Those are two books of hers I really loved lately. And she's really great on audio. She performs her own audiobooks. And I've also been rereading a novel by Iris Murdoch, called The Philosopher's Pupil. I often reread things that I somehow have a gut feeling are going to influence my next project. And The Philosopher's Pupil is definitely one of those. It is set in a spa town in England. And it's a really, really amazing, atmospheric novel. And the kind of, ah, the steam from these hot springs kind of penetrates the whole book in this really fascinating way. It's Pride Month here in New York as well. And in addition to reading Irby, I've also just bought Pet by Awake Emezi and You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson. Both of those are YA that have been getting huge buzz here in the States. And I am going to be reading those this month. They are sitting in my e-reader waiting for me to crack them. People often ask if I listen to music while writing, and I think a lot of writers do create soundtracks that get them in the mood of the novel that they're writing. But I really prefer to write in silence. I have noise-canceling headphones, and I put them on with nothing playing. I just like to be alone with my own thoughts and in the world of my imagination whenever I'm writing. It works the best for me. For those of you who pick up again and again, I hope that you enjoy the plot twist. I hope It makes you think about the choices we make in our lives and the ways we describe our own identities and how those descriptions influence the way we act with the people we care about. I hope it's entertaining and gives you all the feels. And I wanted to let those of you who have already read We Were Liars know that although there are six dogs in Again Again, all of them are happily alive at the end of the story. All right, I hope you like it. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on the Hotkey Podcast and for listening. If you have questions or want to know more about Again Again, come visit me on Twitter at eLockhart or come see the visual party on Instagram where I am at eLockhartBooks. Um, and my website is emilylockhart.com. Thanks so much. Bye. It is now my pleasure to introduce Marina, our wonderful audio team member, who has kindly agreed to tell us a little bit about her work here at Hockey Books and in the wider company of Bonnier Books UK. But more importantly, to give us an insight into the wonderful world of audiobooks and what goes into their creation. I'm Marina Stavropoulou and I'm the audio assistant at Bonnier Books UK. My earlier career started as a bookseller in various indie bookstores in Greece. Then I moved on to a Greek publisher called Patakis, one of the major publishers in Greece. I stayed there for two years handling the digital content. I then found a job as a bibliographic coordinator at Penguin Random House UK, so I moved to London. I stayed there 
for two years handling, again, metadata and taking care of the biblio part of the business. But my passion was always in audiobooks ever since I first started listening to audiobooks. And uh, I was trying to get into this business. When I first started my role last year, I was handling a lot of the admin for the department, doing invoices, handling all the sales reports, taking care of scheduling and basically doing some, as we all do in the audio department, a bit of product management, meaning we take the audiobook from acquisitions all the way through distribution and then price promotions and marketing. But as the months went by, my role evolved and I now have my own titles, which I'm working on with the support of the rest of the team, obviously. I'm incredibly lucky to have such an amazing team. Our director of audio, John Watt, Lara Michaela, who is in charge of the fiction list, and Alba Brocco, who is in charge of the non-fiction list. I'm doing casting, which is one of the best aspects of my job. Before I started doing casting, I never knew how much work and thought people put into their audiobooks, because there are all these different decisions you have to make every time you want to produce an audiobook. For instance, what is the main character's accent? Where have they come from? Where do they live now? And do they interact with other people with the same accent? Or are they from different parts of the UK? Or are they American? Or are they Australian? Decisions we have to make, bearing in mind that we don't want to overemphasize the accents because that would be really difficult for someone from the UK to be listening, for instance, to my accent, which is obviously Greek. And well, that would put an authenticity note on the audiobook, but it might become grating to the listener after a while. You have to remember that an audiobook might be between 8 or 12 or 15 hours and you're in the listener's ear for so many hours. You have to have a soothing voice, a nondescript accent, basically what we call RP. Other things to keep in mind, representation, basically who the character is, who the author is. So for a Japanese character, we would want a Japanese accent actor doing the narration, but a Japanese actor that also is British, which is, as you can imagine, pretty difficult to find. For me, it's really important to find the right voice and to represent own voices, because it's not just a question of of what sounds good, but you also have to service the story. Another aspect would be the manuscript. So when we get the final manuscript from editorial, sometimes uh, we know Notice that in the text there are many references to reading. Sometimes we'd want to change that to listening. Or when there's an author letter at the end and the author says, Dear readers, we would like to change that to dear listeners. Or the format of the book doesn't translate well to audio, then there should be an adaptation in coordination with the author and the editor. One of the highlights of this year for me was when I was in the studio and was helping the narrator with the story because it was a very difficult and challenging book. Brilliant book, but 
but very challenging for the narrator. Lots of different accents and it was a fantasy book so you can understand that there were a lot of words, unknown words that we needed pronunciations from the author and then the narrator needed to remember those over a 15 hour long audiobook which can be taxing but that's when you have someone who really knows the story well and the pronunciations and everything and they can they can inform the narrator they can mention this and they can help out with the emotion of every scene and stuff like that obviously the narrator does their own interpretation and we would never want to force our own view of the work to the narrator because it's a performance so you have to let the narrator perform but when you can support them with more information that's always a plus in my day-to-day i come in contact with lots of different people both internal and external internally I work with most departments, maybe not so much with sales because our products are sold directly online and we handle online retailers, but sometimes we have CD editions of audiobooks, so then we would come in contact with sales as well. But we mostly work with editorial and marketing and PR, IT and metadata analysts and the rest. Externally, we come in contact with a lot of the studios we work with and the narrators sometimes they're freelance narrators so we have to contact their agents and then have to bring them in contact with the studio so there's a lot of back and forth but I do love talking with people about books that I'm passionate about so this is a plus for me that's basically it for me if you're interested in working in publishing I would suggest looking outside of the editorial box because when we're in college most and universities most of us we mostly think of publishing in terms of authors and editors sometimes marketing but there are a lot of other jobs you could get involved with and if you're more techie there's always a need for that in publishing if you have any questions please hit me up on twitter at marina staff or on instagram at my mostly reading life thanks for having me Elizabeth Acevedo is the New York Times best-selling and 2019 Carnegie Medal winning author of The Poet X and With the Fire on High. She's also a National Poetry Slam champion and resides in Washington, D.C. with her partner. Her newest novel is Clap When You Land, a dual narrative novel in verse which follows the stories of two sisters who find each other when they lose their father. Today she will be speaking to us about the decision to write a novel in verse and the things which she considers whilst making that choice. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Acevedo and I am the author of Clap When You Land, published with Hotkey Books, May 2020. I'm so excited to be here on the Hotkey podcast and I want to talk a little bit about writing a novel in verse and the three things that I consider when I'm trying to understand whether or not A novel in verse is the best container for a story. And I want to use my latest novel, Clap When You Land, as an example of what are some things that I, um, kind of my checklist, as I figure out whether or not the format works for a story. Clap When You Land is the novel of two sisters, Camino and Yahaira Rios, who do not know about each other until their father dies in a plane crash. And to give you all a little bit of an understanding around the impetus of the story, Clap When You Land is inspired by a real-life event. 
there was a plane crashed in 2001 on its way from New York City to the Dominican Republic. It crashed two months after the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City. And at first, when that plane crashed, the one in November of 2001, folks didn't know what was going on. And they thought that perhaps it was terrorism again. I was 13 years old. My city was reeling. I was born and raised in New York. And so we were already in the midst of what felt like an unprecedented moment. And then a plane full of 260 people, many of whom were of Dominican descent, the same descent that I am from, were on that flight. 90% of the plane were Dominican nationals. And um, there were no survivors. And even at my young age, I remember being so moved by the loss of life so quickly and by all of the stories that began coming out about the different people on that plane. And it sparked an idea of wanting to chronicle that moment. And so 20 years later, I am sitting with this story idea of these two sisters and I realized that it's the same story that I'm trying to tell, trying to commemorate that moment and also attempting to rethink um, certain questions that I have about my community. And Clap When You Land really did come from that. I wasn't sure at first that it would be a novel in verse. There are three things that I think are really important to a successful novel in verse. The first is interiority. How close do we actually want to be to these characters? Do they have enough inward thoughts? Do they have enough contemplation of a big idea that if a reader is sitting with their internal musings for 10 pages, they'll be interested? And in a novel where we are talking about grief, about characters that have lost someone and have also gained someone, I thought that there was enough happening, enough interesting ruminations and, and circling of hurt and of wondering and of what do I do next that I could hold the story with those characters' thoughts. Sometimes with an action-driven story where it's not as much contemplating a character's motivations, but they are on a hero's journey where they have to go after something. There's not as much um, interiority in that. A decision needs to be made and action happens. And so those novels may not be as well held by something like a novel in verse. And so with this book where there is some traveling, there are a good amount of characters, I wasn't sure if verse was going to be the best vehicle, but because of the fact that both sisters um, are grappling with grief so visibly, I knew that there was an opportunity to sit really closely with what they felt and to ask readers to come sit closely with what they felt as well. And so I think character-driven stories um, can do really well in verse. Another thing that I think about is the language of experience. I think that every point of view in a novel and verse has to have its own kind of um, toolkit of language that it's using. And so the sister Camino, who lives in the Dominican Republic, loves to swim and her aunt is a healer woman. And so these are the kinds of experiences that she has to pull from. So a lot of her language base, I knew early on, was going to be around water. 
around the body moving through water, but also metaphors around solves and bombs and teas and the different things that her aunt uses to try to help her community stay healthy. And for the sister Yahaira, who lives in New York, I knew that she was going to be a chess player. And I also knew that she was going to love fashion and beauty and nails. And so a lot of her metaphors, a lot of her language comes from New York City, from the visual of her actual area and setting, but also her strategic mind and the fact that she falls back on imagery around the war of chess, the game of chess in order to be able to contemplate the world. And so I knew that for the book to work, the characters were going to have to have distinct bases of wordplay that I needed to pull from. And so that was um, one of the, the early decisions that I made was, does each character have enough unique experiences that I can paint from their point of view using um, reoccurring imagery? And so that was incredibly intentional, but it was also helpful to have a backstory for the characters in my head that mapped onto what I would need for them to sound distinct. And then the last thing that I contemplate, um, and this one's probably going to be a little obvious, but I think a novel in verse has to think about music, right? We have to consider um, the pacing of language. We have to consider what words feel like they jump off the page, like they hit you with a gut punch, like they lull you, right? I wanted to be really intentional about the fact that each sister has her own kind of music. The sister who's growing up in a less urban area has a cadence that um, isn't as clipped, right? It's not staccato, like the way that the sister in New York, who's used to um, trains and hard stops and um, the push and pull of really frantic areas, that comes through in her speech. And so the way that music and rhythm and where do I put punctuation comes forth, I, I know that if a character is speaking to me in a manner where um, there's a musicality, to the sound, but also to the phrasing, to to the way that the momentum of their speech works, that there's probably enough there that I can tease out to make into poetry. And so those are three things that I contemplate when I am considering a novel in verse, interiority, the language of experience, and music. My name is Elizabeth Acevedo. Thank you so much for having me here on the Hot Key Podcast. And thank you for listening. If you have any questions about Clap When You Land or my other novel with Hot Key with the fire on high, you can find me on Twitter at Acevedo Writes or on Instagram at Acevedo Writes or at my website, AcevedoWrites.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Hotkey podcast. We would love it if you could rate and subscribe and spread the word to all of those YA fans out there. You can find Hotkey Books at Hotkey Books YA and at Hotkey Books Teen on Twitter and Instagram and at Hotkey Books on Facebook and YouTube. If you're a Hotkey fan, you can also subscribe to the Hotkey mailing list. All of the details about that can be found in the pinned tweet on our Twitter profile. 
We would love to hear any suggestions or thoughts you have on the podcast. So if you have any questions or content you would like to hear featured, please do email marketing.childrens at bonniabooks.co.uk. Our audiobook extract this week is from Midnight's Twins by Holly Race, the first novel in a compelling, dark and dangerous fantasy trilogy. The street was full of dreams, and some of them were dangerous. Trolls stepped forth from the concrete undercuts of the South Bank and did battle with packs of wildcats. Cockroaches and rats swarmed towards squeamish dreamers. The flourish of a whale spout arched up out of the Thames and over the balustrade, spraying Una in lukewarm river water. What Una feared, though, was not a dream at all. The traitor had tracked her from Trafalgar Square, down to the river and across the flotsam-topped water. She thought she had lost it when she went underground, but now she could feel it nearby. Awareness crawled along her arms and up the back of her neck. Somewhere, it was watching her. She had been stupid going underground, where she didn't have a clear idea of direction. Now she'd made the final leg of her journey even harder. She had to get back to Tower Hill, which meant that she'd need to cross the river once more and approach her portal from the south instead of the north, as she had planned. Well, there was no point in beating herself up about it now. She had panicked when she spotted the traitor. It was as simple as that, and not one night would have blamed her. Una peered around the corner. Above her, a flock of vultures circled a pair of dreamers. Vultures in this world didn't tend to wait for carrion. They made their own. No, she couldn't help them. She mustn't. She wasn't a knight anymore. Her obligation was to her family now. No, absolutely not. Don't even think about it, Una. Damn it. Snatching a heavy stone from the ground, she broke cover, running in superhuman strides towards the dreamers. Was that a flush of gold beneath the archway to her left, or was her mind playing tricks on her? The scar on her arm, barely visible in ether, but still a fault line of skin and flesh in Anun, prickled with the memory of its making. If it was the traitor, she had better make this stupid charge worthwhile. She measured her leaps as she drew closer to the dreamers. The vultures were hovering in the gathered lull that precedes an attack. She adjusted her grip on the stone, drew back her arm. Tap, 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 tap. Shit, it was behind her. Bile seeped into her mouth, but she did not falter. The stone hit one of the vultures squarely in the chest, and with a firework boom, the vulture exploded back into Inspire. Una didn't wait to watch. She was already sprinting down the riverbank, away from the clattering gate of the traitor. A raking screech told her that the other vultures had diverted their attention to her as well. Their shadows made whirlwinds on the pavement around her, growing darker and thicker as they descended. One dived, its claws ripping at her hair. She knocked it off and built up speed, past bicycles, leaping over dreamers and moving cars, faster, faster, away from the golden traitor and the nightmares that accompanied it. A human screamed behind her. She glanced back. The traitor was gaining on her, but though she kept moving, she couldn't help but see the bundle of clothes and hair heaped on the ground behind it. One of the dreamers she had saved from the vultures only seconds ago cut down just for being in the traitor's path. A rivulet of blood was already winding its way, from the dying body to the churning life of the Thames. 
Una's terror expelled itself as her throaty cry. She turned and ran, faster than she had ever run before, in this world or the other, leaving the vultures behind but unable to shake that relentless tap-tap of the traitorous claws. Dawn was already breaking, autumnal fingers turning the river to flame and the skyline to shadow. An arctic wind blowing upstream numbed Una's face. With a crack, part of the river iced over. Dreams formed there, skaters in mufflers, polar bears and penguins. Una seized her chance. Sliding out onto the ice, she aimed for the middle of the water. If the traitor followed her, surely the ice would break beneath its weight. Beyond the frost, a sailing boat was making good time. With a great effort, Una leaped for the ship's side and swung herself on board. Dreamers and dreams alike craned over the sides and hung from the poles, but Una ignored them all. She shimmied up the tallest mast and looked back towards the shore. The traitra was there, its head, smooth and featureless except for two black pinpricks for eyes, followed her. Woman and monster stared at each other. Then the boat swung to the east, and the traitra fell out of view.